Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. My name is Gene, and I, too, am an alcoholic. And as I said last week, I always identified myself as an alcoholic based on how I interpret the definition of the word alcoholic, as it's defined in the third chapter of the book, Alcoholics Anonymous. For those of you who are new and for those of you who haven't gotten around to reading the third chapter, it says in that chapter that we alcoholics are men and women who have lost the ability to control our drinking. And that's all we are. It doesn't make any mention to how much we drank, what we drank, where we drank, or what happened as a result of our drinking. I think we ought to give those two little girls, where are they now? Did they leave already? Oh, there they are. You see, them two there were about the last to say they were alcoholics last week. This week they held off to about next to last. Now, next week, I bet you they're going to be the first two up there. Let's give them a big hand anyway. <laughs> don't spoil them. Don't spoil them. Don't spoil them. Jesus Christ Almighty. They'll be wanting to speak next week. Now. <laughs> you know, some years ago, uh, I used to have a, a little thing that used to take place in my life every time I went into San Francisco that was always a pleasure. To me, and this is uh, enough years that I don't care to mention them anymore, but uh, I used to like to hang out around a place called Lefty O'Doul's on Geary Street, because in those days, uh, a lot of AAs hung out in there. Uh, I can remember Frank from the Seven Seas was always in there, and any of you that know Lefty's place know that Lefty was an admitted alcoholic, but a, a guy who never really wanted to do anything serious about his drinking. The piano player in there was Al Rick, a long-time member of Alcoholics Anonymous. The cop who stood right there in the corner of Geary and Powell was the late Joe very active member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And then I used to drive a newspaper truck in those days down through that area. And uh, so I always used to look forward to coming back into the city and, and sitting over in lefties. I sort of go for that Hofbrau-type food, you know, and... And we'd sit in there, Lefty would tell baseball stories, and Brennan would tell sea stories, and Cassidy would tell cop stories, and Al would tell show business stories, and I'd tell some lies too, and, <laughs> and, uh, I used to stay overnight there in those days, and I don't want any of you to think that I'm a big spender or anything like that, but I always used to stay up there on the corner of, uh, Sutter and Powell at the Sir Francis Drake, one of the oldest hotels in there in the city. And the only reason I, I got to stay there is I got a free ride because I sponsored the manager of that hotel. And, uh, but what I really used to look forward to was coming down from the hotel, you know, and getting uh, in with Lefty and Frank and them guys. And, and this one particular afternoon, I was shooting down uh, Powell Street and I crossed over Post and I was walking in front of the St. Francis Hotel going towards Geary when all of a sudden a voice came out from the crowd. And it was a woman, a woman whom I hadn't seen in hell 20 years. I hadn't seen her since about 1946, 47. Uh, a woman who I didn't really know all that well. Uh, I knew her husband. That's the only reason I knew her. 
and, our, and I didn't even know him all that well. He was one of them kind of guys that you older fellows can remember uh, right after the war when we still hung on to a little bit of that military camaraderie, you know. We, we all drank together and raised hell together and acted like little kids together and stuff like that and until we began to mature and then we all went on our own ways. And, and I had drank with her husband, you know, on occasions. Uh, that sort of wild type drinking that we did. But her I didn't really know. And uh, as I answered her greeting, you know, I walked up and she had a little badge on. And she was obviously there for a convention. It was a convention of home economics teachers from the all over the United States. And she was a home economics teacher in a little town called Sycamore, Illinois. And uh, so I, you know, I played the, the host bit, you know. Uh, you want to ride the cable cars, you want to see Fisherman's Wharf, or whatever, Chinatown. Say whatever the hell you want to say, you know. And uh, and I tried to be polite. And uh, she said, no, uh, no. Uh, what she really wanted to do, embarrass the hell out of me, to tell you the truth. Jesus Christ Almighty. She says, you know, in the hotel lobby, she says, they have a mezzanine. And up on this mezzanine, they serve tea and, and sandwiches by little Japanese people with the big things in the back, you know, and a white face and all. And they run around like their feet are tied together and all that. And she says, I'd like to go up there and have some tea and, and sandwiches. Jeez. Tea, you know. And I looked around to see if there was anybody around, you know, that I knew or anything. And I ducked in there with her and... And we went up there and they had them little sandwiches, you know, I don't know what the hell you call them. They don't have any crust on them, you know what I mean? Little, kind of tiny thing. And the coffee come in a thimble, I swear to God, you know. And, and you sit there and you, you keep poking your finger in your eye, you know. And horrible thing. But, but she was getting a big kick out of all of, this, all of that crap, you know. And, and as we sat there, you know, uh, we got to talking and... It's obvious, the obvious question I asked her, you know, was, how's Warren? As soon as I said that, you know, I knew I had touched a very delicate area in her life. And she said, well, uh, didn't you know uh, about Warren? And I said, know what? She said, well, Warren's dead. Warren's been dead for about eight years. Well, a little bit of quick mathematics in my Mine told me that this guy had a had died at about 33 or 34. And now, when you hear people dying at 33 and 34, you don't figure they died. You know, you figure they got killed. Nobody dies that's 34, 33 years old. They get killed. That's, and that's all I could think of, you know, that, that she was going to say he was in some violent auto wreck or somebody shot him or, uh, he fell off of a scaffold while he was a carpenter, and and uh, so I waited, and then she didn't say anything more. Well, you know, I didn't want to push it. I'm trying to be polite, you know, and so we continued some asinine conversation for about 10, 15 minutes, and then finally, Christ, I just, you know, I didn't give a damn about the home economic teacher situation. What the hell, you know? I wanted to know about Warren. So I says, how did Warren get killed? And she said, Warren didn't get killed. She said, he died. And you know, I was, I was almost aghast at that. I said, died? 
What the hell did he die of, you know? What could you possibly have at 34 that was going to die? You know? And then she got flushed. And then, again, I knew I was in some sort of a territory that was very uncomfortable for her. And she looked at me, and she sort of looked around as though she was looking to see if anybody was going to hear us. Because apparently she was going to be terribly ashamed of what she was about to say. And she said, well, I guess it's all right telling you. She said, Warren died of alcoholism. I said, oh, what? And she said, yes, he had cirrhosis of the liver. Very bad. And he was told to stop drinking. And he didn't stop. And he died. I said, Jesus Christ. I said, that's hard for me to believe. I said, sure, I drank with Warren. I said, but hell, he didn't drink any more than the rest of us, you know. And he didn't appear to be a heavy drinker, you know. And she said, well, that's what everybody said, you know. She said, but... But you guys didn't see Warren when he came home and how he drank at home and how he drank in the morning and all of those things that led to the scarring of all of these tissues that took his life. And I just sort of shook my head, you know, and, and she didn't know nothing about me. Hell, what the hell, last thing she knew about me, I was probably being locked up back in DeKalb, Illinois for disorderly conduct or something. And that was in 1946. I said, Jesus Louise, you know, I said, I wish to hell I had known that Warren had a problem. And she looked at me sort of dumbfounded, you know. And as though to say, you know, what the hell are you, a doctor or something, you know? And, and she said, why? She said, what, what could you have done? And I said, well, you probably don't know it. I said, but you know, I'm an alcoholic. And I says, I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I haven't found it necessary to take a drink for, I forget how many years it was at that time. Not important now. And she said, you're a member of what? And you could almost see that look of disgust come over her face. And I says, of Alcoholics Anonymous. She said, my God. She said, Warren wasn't that bad. Now, now, you know, that's sort of a minstrel show joke, you know? But the tragic part of that is that is no joke. There is a world full of idiots out there that feel that way, that would rather die than identify themselves as an alcoholic. Hell, the book told us that. It said many of us will persist. You know, in an insane illusion, right up to the gates of insanity or death. Rather than stand up before a group like this and courageously, and I love to say that, courageously say, my name is Joe, and my name is Mary, and I'm an alcoholic. You know. Takes a lot of guts to do that. I have a little feeling about that, and I don't know if I said it here last week. If I did, it's worth repeating anyhow. Because it's about one of the few good things that are ever said about alcoholics, you know. We've been sort of kicked around and batted around all our lives. Even when we get sober, we get seem to be kicked around, you know. People still don't like to trust, oh, that guy's alcoholic. 
many areas, we're still considered the so-called outcasts of the world, you know, the lowly common drunkard. You can't trust that guy's an alcoholic. And then some of them unknowing assholes out there talk to us about being weak-willed and not having any willpower and all of that cheap crap, you know. Willpower. What the hell do they know about willpower? Oh, willpower. <laughs> you got any faith in willpower? Try it the next time you have diarrhea and see what kind of luck you have, you know. But that's what some of these jerks run around. I try that willpower. Hey, you know what I think? I'm not too sure that the alcoholics may not be some of the strongest willed people that walk the face of this earth. That's right. There's a lot of things that bear evidence to that. You know, you could take two alcoholics. Put them out in the middle of a desert. Chain them to a tree to keep them from drinking. If them two guys had a desire to drink, I guarantee you inside of five days they'd come up with a formula for distilling sand. <laughs> they have put us in penitentiaries. I drank more in a penitentiary than I ever did any other place in my life, you know. When the alcoholic makes up his mind to drink, he drinks. Nothing stops him, even lack of money. I lived on Skid Row for 17 months with no income, no source of support. And I was being interviewed by a shrink in St. Louis once. This amazed him. He was writing a book, you know, and he was using, getting a lot of material from me. And one day, one day he says this to me, you know. He says, you know, as I was looking over my notes last night, he said, I don't know if I got this right or not. He said, you say you were on Skid Row for 17 months? I said, that's right. He said, you smoke, don't you? I said, three packs a day. Been doing that since I was 14. He said, well, you had to eat. You had to sleep someplace in the wintertime. And you got a few changes of clothes. And he says, and you get drunk every day. He said, how the hell can you do that with no income? I said, I got drunk twice a day. Twice a day. <laughs> and that's true when you think of the alcoholic, you know. We operate like that. I know guys that have been down in that street, believe it or not, for 20 years. Haven't hit a lick for 20 years. But haven't missed a drink either for 20 years. I haven't missed a smoke for 20 years. They eat better on Thanksgiving and Christmas than you and I ever dreamed of eating, you know. They know when to get in out of the cold and how to get out out in the sun, you know. Beautiful, beautiful, you know. But you know why I think we're strong-willed? Really, why? And, and I don't say this to build up our egos. God, owns, we don't need that. But let's look at the alcohol. At the level that we... We usually find ourselves prior to coming here. Most of us have reached a point where alcohol has become, or whatever the hell you use it. Whether you're rolling it up in dollar bills, popping little capsules, smoking funny little cigarettes or shooting, whatever the hell you're using, 
becomes the most important thing in your life. The most important thing in your life. I said it here last week. You know, I'm not the only one in this room who's ever said, Jesus Christ, give me a drink before I die. We have believed that. Alcohol was the answer to everything we had. We were safe. We were safe if we could get a drink. And now, all of a sudden, almost a complete stranger approaches you and I about the possibility of coming to something called Alcoholics Anonymous. Something we don't know a damn thing about. And we don't really know this guy. Who the hell is he? And all of a sudden he's talking about us giving up for just one day, he said. Don't take a drink for a day. For a day? You mean for a day? I've got to put that most important thing in my life aside? For a day, I, what do I go on for that day? It'll be alright, he says. Be alright? What are you talking about? It'll be alright. Yeah, it'll be alright. Just believe me. And many of us, and obviously those of you who sit in here, are nothing but blind faith. Blind faith. Set aside the most important thing in our life. And that takes balls. And that takes guts. And that takes courage. So screw those ignorant assholes out there <laughs> who call us weak-willed, you know. They just don't know. And that brings me to what I'm going to talk about tonight. You know, there's a lot of people say, hey, come on, you're not that bad. I guess all of us have that said to us. Hell, I live up there in the wine country. God Almighty, go to lunch a lot, you know, and a lot of my friends are non-alcoholics or in the wine business. And, and, you know, they don't know nothing about alcoholism or AA. They, you know, they don't interest them really, you know. And, and often they'll say, come on, duh, for Christ's sake, you can have a little wine. And they believe that. They think that. Or at Christmas time, they say, come on, one drink for the holiday, what's the matter? And, uh, you know, I'm not going to stand there and, you know, give them a 45-minute talk. What the hell? You know, my name is Gene and I'm an alcoholic. And then some of them even say, yeah, well, I know you're an alcoholic. But you're not as bad as them other alcoholics. I said, well, a lot of guys say that. And I say, well, just sit here for a while I go get my scrapbook, you know, and then we'll show you something, you know. And there's a lot of people in AA who, who don't think they're as bad as others, you know, and I can understand that. Hey, you know, there's a lot of young people here tonight, and, and I have to agree with the young people sometimes. And I have, I think, been guilty of this in the past. I'm not too sure, but I, I don't want to leave myself out in case I am. Sometimes I think, you know, us old-timers or people that have been around for a while get a little snotty, 
you know, get a little snotty, a little cocky in our attitudes. Uh, you'll hear a, a newcomer, innocently enough, innocently enough, coming to a meeting some night, and some guy's up here talking about being on death row for 15 years, shot a guard, raped a wife, and killed his dog. And this newcomer will say, Jeez, I've never done anything like that. And 15 people say, Yep! And I don't think that's really fair, you know? Some of these younger people have been through more shit by the time they're 15 than I was by the time I was 40, you know? And that was just on their way to school. But I can understand a lot of people not thinking they're as bad as. I can remember one of the first meetings I went to, you know. A guy that told me, he says, we're all alike. Boy, and that bothered me the whole hour. Because <laughs> the guy on my left had just gotten out of Joliet Penitentiary. I had never even had a parking ticket. You know? I said, what the hell is this guy talking about we're all alike? Guy on my right had been someplace called Skid Row. All I'd ever heard about that was reading Jack London's books. I didn't even know where the hell or what the hell Skid Row was. Some guy behind me had been divorced about 11 times. And was just celebrating the ninth marriage to the same woman, you know. I figured, God, he's weird, you know. Guy in front of me had big... Roadmap for a face, you know. <laughs> Kept belching all during the... During the bleh, bleh. I knew I wasn't like him, I know, you know. And I was saying those things that people like us say. Well, hell, I'm not that bad. And who's to say I was or who's to say I wasn't? A lot of people think you can be just a little bit alcoholic. I thought that for a long time, until a guy straightened me out, you know. He straightened me out in that same manner most of you have heard, you know. He said, uh, if you're an alcoholic, you've lost the ability to control your drinking. You either lost it or, or you still have it. He said, Buffett's sort of like pregnancy, you know. You can't be a little bit pregnant. You're either knocked up or you're not knocked up. It's that simple, you know. And it's sort of the same thing. You know, you've either got the control or you don't have the control. You can't be a little bit pregnant. You can't be a periodic pregnant, you know. <laughs> Not at the um, time errors that we put in. So I thought about that. You know. I like to, you know, and I imagine some of you in this room might, might think that right now. And, you know, you may be right. You may be right. Maybe we have been wrong all along. Maybe there is such a thing as not being as bad as or being a little bit alcoholic. And so to sort of show you, or not show you, that's egotistical, that maybe just to give the newcomers a chance here tonight, 22 of them, maybe you're sitting there wondering, what in the hell am I doing here, well, maybe you don't belong here, and maybe you do. Ours is a program of identification, they say. They say, keep coming to these meetings, and you'll eventually hear what you have to hear, or you'll identify with somebody. Well, that's what this is sort of about, what I'd like to do with you here this evening. 
I'm going to tell you about some of my friends in AA. Who are a little bit alcohol. And who are a whole lot alcohol. And you can see I've done that by dividing this chart up here into two sections. Control of your life or uncontrol of your life, regardless of what kind of chemical or substance you're using. If you use it bad, it gets bad. If you're not, not too bad. Now this first, this is a lady up here, it's not a guy, it's short for Patricia. I, you know, I, I made a motion one night at an AA meeting to have her kicked out. Really, I did. Because I didn't think she belonged in AA, you know. And that's in those days when I'm stupid, man. I haven't changed a hell of a lot since them days. Furthermore, I have heard all of these people. It's not me diagnosing them as alcoholics. I heard every one of these people say, my name is such and such and I'm an alcoholic. And let me tell you some of the things that brought them to AA. You think Patricia belongs in AA? Here's a woman who, by her own admission, never took a drink out of her own home in her life. How the hell can you be an alcoholic doing that, you know? She said she'd never drank more than a pint in one day in her life. And if she drank a pint, it was something like sherry wine. For Christ's sake, get her the hell out of here, you know? She's taking up a seat. That's how I saw the figure. <laughs> but here's what brought her to AA. She was married to a guy by the name of Peter. Jesus, he was from the Third Reich, you know. Oh, boy, what a guy. A regular Himmler, you know. I think he's one of the escaped Nazis, you know. Ooh. He and I never got along good, and he was... Boy, oh, I can't. I didn't even want to talk about it. They lived in a little town called Crystal Lake, Illinois. Nice town. Sort of a bedroom community, you know. Uh, sort of like these little communities that feed San Jose and San Francisco. Uh, Atherton, places like that. Well-to-do people. Uh, whose husbands were in a big power struggle in the major cities and would get up each morning and leave on the commute train and into Chicago to fight the big battle of the stars, you know. And, and Patricia used to say that her life be, became a drag, you know, because she had raised this beautiful family, two lovely daughters, two beautiful sons, active kids, active in all kinds of community affairs, school affairs. They were well-respected family in the community, you know, the pillars of the community. And she said her life became a nothing. She said she, she felt so unneeded. She said it seemed like the only requirements that she had for living was getting up in the morning and waking the rest of the family up. Half of them wouldn't even eat breakfast. She had to drive Peter Himmler down to the damn depot in the morning, get him on the train, and then go back on home, tidy up the kitchen a little bit. Make a few beds. She had that being an alcoholic, guilty of perfection. She had that done by 10 o'clock in the morning. And she had the whole day on her hands. She even got so bad that she would make the evening meal, which wasn't going to be served until 7 o'clock. She'd have it all ready, covered with aluminum foil, even laying in the oven. 
All she'd have to do is walk past the oven about 315 and turn it on to 375 and go, you know. And she became bored with life. Now, most normal people who become bored with life do normal things. Normal things. They try to replace the boredom. And she did. She went out. She joined them things that you join. Uh, volunteers of America, local garden club, bridge club. She wrapped bandages at the VA hospital one day a month. And all sorts of little things that, that them kind of people do. And she got along fine. She got along fine. And then a day came along in her life one day. It was a day that there was no garden club. It wasn't the day to wrap the bandages. It wasn't the day to volunteer down at the hospital. Sort of a nothing day. She got to walking around the house after 10 o'clock in the morning, having all everything done. Moseyed into the living room, browsing through her husband's record collection. All of a sudden, she pulled out a couple of old Glenn Miller records. She thought she'd like to hear them. She played a couple of Moonlight Serenade, Sunrise Serenade, Chattanooga Choo Choo. And in the book Alcoholics Anonymous, it makes mention of how we desperately, in our drinking, tried to recapture the great moments of the past. And all of a sudden she found herself sitting there in the living room listening to Glenn Miller, listening to Tommy Dorsey, all of a sudden, it wasn't Crystal Lake, Illinois. All of a sudden, it was Pelham, New York. She was 16, 17 years old. She didn't have on a housecoat now. She had on a Norgandy dress. It was senior prom time. She was dancing with whoever the hell she was dancing with. It was a beautiful memory. And as the memory began to fade, she didn't want to lose it. She said, gee, I have a little drink in Maybe it'll stay a while. She reached into the liquor cabinet and had a little wine. The band began to play again. Little Artie Shaw and Frenesee. Little Green Eyes from Jimmy Dorsey. I'm a Pola. Hey, she was back at the Glen Island Casino. Aragon Ballroom. Tree and on, wherever it could be. God, it was fun. And she kept playing the records and she had a little bit more sherry. All of a sudden, she fell asleep. Next thing she knew, the phone was ringing. And it was Himmler himself. <laughs> Calling from the depot. Where the hell are you? Oh, oh Jesus Christ. She shook her head free and hopped to the station wagon and got down there and picked him up. And he got in there with that third right, you know. You don't stop drinking, I'm going to divorce you. That's a hell of a threat. All of a threat to a woman's security, her life. A woman who's been perfect just about all of her life. Now because of this moment of reverie somewhere along the line. A couple of drinks. The threat is real. So she says, don't get excited, don't get excited. She had a couple of drinks. She says, I didn't know it bothered you that much. She said, if my drinking bothers you, hell, I just won't drink anymore. And she meant it. Never realizing for one minute, just as you and I never realized it, that as an alcoholic, she had lost the ability to control. It wasn't hers to decide whether she was going to drink. 
And I don't know how long she said it went on. Two or three weeks, back to the garden club, wrapping the bandages. Then all of a sudden came one of them days again. And she began to think, that's the worst thing an alcoholic can do. She said, this time I won't drink so much. This time I'll just have three sherries. This time I'll set the alarm clock just in case. And she began to get involved with all of them deals that you and I make with alcohol. And it didn't work. She dozed off and the alarm clock went off and she had a go like hell and she got in the car, down to the depot, hit the brake, slid on the ice and went right through the barrier, caved in the front of the car and Himmler was standing right there. (laughs) This is it, you know. She had remembered seeing a little piece in the paper somewhere along the line, you know. Need help with a drinking problem? Call AA. And she called up a woman by the name of Dude Sweely, who lives in Fort Lauderdale, Florida now. 37-year member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Dude brought Patricia to her first AA meeting. Episcopalian Church in Crystal Lake, Illinois, right next to the water tower. And I heard Patricia say that night, my name is Patricia, and I'm an alcoholic, you know. Jimmy, I heard him say it, in a place called Munising, Michigan. Every guy in this room would love Jimmy. Every guy that ever walked the face of the earth would love Jimmy. Jimmy was what is typically referred to as a man's man. General construction superintendent. I worked for him on many, many jobs. Many jobs. Hell of a guy! Kind of a guy that if you had a pat on the back, common boy, you got a pat on the back. If you had a kick in the ass, Sherman, you got a kick in the ass. You always knew where you stood with this guy. And that's the best kind of a guy to be around. And on payday, when we'd be working out of town, headquartering some little saloon, maybe it was the Club Rio up there in Marinette, Wisconsin, right on Highway 41, just on the outskirts, south end of uh, Marinette. On Wednesday nights, we'd get paid. Jimmy would walk in there, and I don't know whose money it was, probably the company's money, expense money, I don't know. But he didn't have to do this. He'd walk in there, and there'd be 40 or 60 of us standing around having a couple of drinks, and he'd wheel out a pocket full of dough, he'd throw it down there in the bar, and he'd say to Clarence Boyer, that's the guy that owned it, say, Clarence, don't take any money from any of my guys till that's gone. We would have died for this guy. would have died for this guy. He used to come down on Monday mornings, get us out of jail, make things right with barkeeps, straighten up the complaints from the other places, you know. Hell of a guy. Hell of a guy. Jimmy was a guy that gave me the first inkling that that there was a negative side to drinking. Because I knew he drank. Hell, I knew he drank. Because he used to talk about it. To talk about, he used to drink Southern Comfort. Jesus, I couldn't stand that, you know. And, and that's why I always remembered that. And I remember saying to him one day up on the scaffold, you know, I said, Jimmy, for Christ's sake, I said, how come you don't hang around with us uh, during the week uh, or on the weekends when we have so much fun, you know? Fun, huh? Come home with three stitches in your lip, big black eye, uh, two arrest warrants and doing court Tuesday afternoon. Oh, a lot of fun, you know? Three guys waiting for you in the parking lot. Jeez. And he said something that, you know, 
It stuck with me, but it never had any meaning until I finally realized what he said. He said, Duff, he said, sure I drink. And he says, and he sort of smiled, and he says, I'd sure like to be with you guys on the weekend. He says, I hear all these tales you tell during the week, and it sounds like you had a lot of fun. He says, but it wouldn't be like that, he says, if I went along with you. And I said, why not? He said, well, Duff, he says, I'm the boss. And he says, I sure as hell like to drink. And he says, you know what would happen? You'd get drunk, and I'd get drunk. And you'd say something that I didn't like, or I'd say something you didn't like. You'd either quit or I'd fire you. would do some goddamn crazy thing. And he says, and I know that. He says, I know that I'm not the same guy when I'm drunk that I am when I'm sober. And I never forgot that. Never forgot that. He says, so it's best that you guys go by yourself. Well, the time came. Now, I'll tell you what a big operator this guy was that I was working for at the time. Any of you guys who are in the Air Force here, you'll know what I'm talking about very well. We were building two sack bases up on the Canadian border. One in Marquette, Michigan, K.I. Sawyer Air Force Base. The other one in Sault Ste. Marie on the Canadian line, Kinchoe Air Force Base. Two multi-billion dollar projects. And this guy was the general superintendent of both of them. Even though they were about 150 miles apart. They had so much trust in this guy that he ran both projects. Which meant there was about 1,800 men. Working for this guy. And he could handle it. He could handle it with ease because he knew how to delegate authority. He knew how to keep on top of things. And then one day, so his story goes. I've always doubted this, but who's to doubt a guy as long as he got it? He said he was leaving Marquette one evening. What he used to do is he'd work in Marquette one day and then that night he'd drive up to Sioux after work and work at the Sioux for the next day, and then go back to Marquette. He said he'd left Marquette to go up to Sault Ste. Marie, and he was like everybody else. Duff, I wanted a couple of horns, you know, after work. He felt like a couple of drinks. And that's all right, I guess, at 4.30 this afternoon, half a million guys in San Jose stopped for a drink, you know. And he did, too. And he said, I went into places, the guy's sitting in there, and the guy said, you want to shake for the drink? So we shook for the drink. He says, I won, so I didn't have to pay. So the guy went to revenge. We had two drinks. Bartender got in the act. We had three, four. I don't know how many. I had about five drinks. Now, I can't speak for nobody's tolerance points. Who the hell knows? But, uh, hell, five drinks. Come on, you know. That's how many, you know, get out of bed with five drinks. You know? I don't think you go into DTs with five drinks or shoot cops or things like that. You know? And he said, uh, I think I had about five, maybe six. He said, but then I left. Now, here's the part I didn't believe in, because I have told this many times myself, and I've heard a million other drunks say it. He says, the cops pulled me over for weaving. And he says, but I really wasn't weaving, Duff. He says, you know what happened? He says, I lit a cigarette. And right after I lit it, he says, I dropped it. And he says, I bent down to pick it up, and I was fit. I come you know. And he says they took his license away, which they did in Michigan in those days. I don't know what the law is now. In those days, first offense, automatic license for a year. No permits or nothing. No driving for a year. That was it. Well, that put him in a hell of a spot. Because he had to go back to our main company then, the main office, and tell him that, you know, he couldn't run both jobs because he couldn't drive back and forth anymore.
And they were pissed. Man, they were pissed. They didn't like it one bit. But uh, they knew they needed him, so they hired a laborer whose job was just to drive Jimmy's pickup truck back and forth for him, you know. Because they wanted to keep that guy. But, you know, they left him with an ultimatum. They said, I don't know if you've got a drinking problem or not. But if you don't do anything about your drinking, we're not only going to get rid of you here, but we're going to wipe you out in the business. And they can do that. Word of mouth can kill you if you trust the business. So Jimmy got a little concerned about that. Now, by this time, I was on AA. A lot of us in that particular crew were on AA. And Jimmy knew it. Uh, but he didn't come to any of us. I've always you know, thought that was funny. He went to a sheet metal worker, a guy by the name of Lionel Bomier from Gladstone, Michigan. And he said, Lionel, he says, could I come to one of them meetings just to see what it's about? So he walked into this meeting in Munising, Michigan. I was sitting there, and the very first night he said, uh, my name is Jim, and he says, I'm, I'm not an alcoholic. He says, I just come here, you know, to, to see what alcoholics are. The next Tuesday night, I think it was, he said, well, my name is Jim, and he says, uh, I guess if I didn't stop in time, I could become an alcoholic. Third meeting, he said something like, uh, well, there might have been times, you know, when I got a little drunk and I was an alcoholic, but I'm not one now. You know. and then he became a periodic alcoholic about the fifth meeting. About the sixth meeting, he got up and said, my name is Jim, and I definitely but here are people, Patricia, 90% of her life was just as perfect, you know, no problems at all with alcohol. Just a little tiny bit down here, 10%. Same with Jimmy, 80% of his life was fine. 20% a little bit ripped off, you know. Ina, let me tell you about Ina. Hey, every AA group should have an Ina, you know. Oh, hey. And, you know, there was a tragedy in Ina's life. You know, if there's any justification for drinking, God, Ina must have had it, you know. Ina, little farm girl from, of all places, Salina, Kansas. Jesus Christ. You know what Salina, Kansas is like? That's like the bottom of an empty paint can, you know? <laughs> you know, there is nothing, there's nothing in Salina, Kansas, you know? And if you think it's bad now, you you should have seen it in 1942. That was, you know, just before the war started, perhaps. And Ina was just a typical Salina, Kansas farm girl. And the pattern of their life was to go to school to the eighth grade, and as soon as they were big enough to carry two buckets of water and feed the thrashers, bang, buy a brassiere and get them married. That was how the hell it happened, you know. That was their life. And she was resigned to that. She was resigned to that as every other girl in Salina, Kansas was, or Hickory, North Carolina, all them other crazy places. Well, I don't have to tell you what happened in 1941. History tells us what happened, you know. Wars do great things sometimes, and of course they do many sad and tragic things. But all of a sudden, you know, 11 million virile young men Put in the shaker, shake it up and scattered like oats all over the United States. And into Salina, Kansas went about 55,000 young men to learn how to be flyers in the United States Air Force. 
All of a sudden, these little farm girls were surrounded. In a ratio, I guess, of one girl to 300 men. And everybody looks good in that situation. And Ina fell in love. A lot of people fell in love during the war. Hell, that was nothing. That was all right. She fell in love with a young guy, and they married. Got their little two-room apartment just off the base, and things went well. He went overseas, done his 30 missions over Berlin someplace. Ina waited for him to come home, and he came home, back to Salina, Kansas, and they were in love again. And then the war ended. The big dream is over. Now it's back to reality, boys. Back to reality. Back to what you really are. You, the bombardier. <laughs> Might be J.C. Penney's now, the shoe department. Joe, you got to go back to that Texaco station, you know. We're not going to call you Major anymore in there. Reality's a tough thing. And I and his husband said, well, I've got to go back to DeKalb, Illinois. I'm a professor at Northern Illinois University. There's a little girl never got past the eighth grade in her life. Professor at a university. He said, oh, yeah. My job will mean that we'll have to entertain a lot. Other faculty members and alumni will have to have formal dinners and sittings. She said, I can, I can feed 32 thrashers. She said, but I don't know how to set a table for the college professors. And she became a shy introvert like many, many women. God, she didn't know what the hell they were talking about. Nuclear fission, Gucci, Paris fashion. All she knew about was catalogs, wards and sears. Put down four forks on this side, six spoons here, knives here and all of that. Christ, she was a nervous wreck. And she made a discovery, the same discovery you would have made. I can hop into that kitchen once in a while, get a little hooker, you know, I'll be all right. She got in there, got a couple of belts, and came back out there and started talking nuclear fission to all of them. <laughs> and one night she goosed the dean of the university. <laughs> Done a lot of things like that, embarrassed the hell out of her husband, Paul, who was the class guy. Class guy. He wasn't like Peter, he loved his wife. He loved her. He didn't want to get rid of her. He said, Ina, honey, you got a problem. I'm going to find out what I can do to help you. He said, I've been checking around, and he said, I think this thing called AA is where you belong. He brought Ina to a little meeting underneath the shoe repair shop in DeKalb, Illinois, on the Lincoln Highway. That sweet little lady said one night, my name is Ina. with the cutest smile you ever saw. Summing up. couple of drinks out in the kitchen and you're in here with the big guys. <laughs> Jack. Hey, every guy that ever walked wanted to be Jack. A lot of us almost died trying to be Jack. <laughs> Jack had that basic male philosophy. From the moment you're born till the moment you die, life should be a party. And nothing should interfere with it. And that's exactly how he lived, boy. He should have been an Australian, you know. He'd drink and be merry. Tomorrow he'll be dead, you know. He sold fire equipment. I'm not talking about extinguishers. He sold trucks to cities. 
He probably worked a whole year trying to make a deal. But when he made a deal, he made a deal. I don't know nothing about sales. I mean, I, they get percentages and commissions or something like that, I guess. But every now and then you'd read where Jack sold $2.5 million worth of trucks to uh, Schenectady, New York. I don't know what the hell kind of commission you get on $2.5 million, but it must be pretty damn good, you know. And then he'd party it up. Party it up. And fate made a strange couple out of me and Jack. Even though we were in totally unrelated businesses. I was in a construction business. He's selling and firing me. It just seemed that every city that I went to to do a project, there was Jack trying to sell fire equipment. One of them cities I'll never forget, I was doing the water treatment facilities and sewage treatment facilities in Chillicothe, Ohio, another paint can place, you know. <laughs> God damn it if Jack wasn't there selling Chillicothe, Ohio, a bunch of fire equipment. Now, when a bunch of guys get out of town away from home, they sort of headquarter in one saloon. You guys know that. And the last, the most vivid thing I can remember about Jack is we were in a place called the Palms. I don't know why the hell they called it the Palms in Ohio, you know. But it was a Saturday night, and it was a bummer. It was in the winter, and it was half drizzling, half fog, half ice. Nobody came out that night. All the girls stayed home. It was just lousy. And about ten of us hanging out in the Palms, you know, just that... Quiet, tight drinking, you know, just boredom. A couple of guys playing shuffleboard, and there was old Sporty Jack. That's what I used to call He always had big sport coats on, a little hat, you know. He was sitting up there at the bar, three sheets to the wind, you know. And all of a sudden, he broke the quiet. And this is the kind of a guy he was. He pulled out a big roll, you know, and he stumbled, you know. He said, I got 1100 bucks. Does anybody want to go to Hawaii? <laughs> Just like that. Two guys got up and went with him. They walked out the door and thought they were going across the street to Hawaii. <laughs> Monday, of course, we're getting telegrams. Send more money, you know, and all this crap, you know. But that's how he was, you know. But Jack knew about drying out joints. He was the first guy that I ever heard talk about that. He knew about Hazelden up there in Santa City, Minnesota. He said, Duff, every now and then, he says, uh, when I got to get serious about selling equipment, he says, I, I, I go up there for a month and I get myself straightened out. And he says, I feel good for a while. Then I go back to drinking. And I can remember saying to him, you know, how ironic today, you know. I said, well, what the hell would a damn fool want to stop drinking for while he still had money? You know? <laughs> I, even to this day, you know, when people come where I work, that, that bothers me. You know, what are you coming in here for? You still got money. You <laughs> I never quit drinking in my life if I had money. Good, right. So I used to wonder about that. But Jack had a lot of problems. He's all up there drying out and all that crap. So 60-40 for him. I lived on Skid Row with Billy. Billy was an architect, and by his own choice, he chose to live on Skid Row, you know. He didn't want nothing to do with AA and... But the reason I split him up 50-50 is because, hey, it takes a hell of a lot of control to live on Skid Row. Don't you think for one minute? You know, and I mentioned all the things that I've done with no income. That takes some kind of manager, you know. And this guy could manage, boy, and, and, and survive. Hazel? Sort of like Ina and Pat, only wild. When she drove her husband to the depot in the morning, she usually had on her slip. 
And on the way back home, she'd stop in for a couple of drinks. At 4 o'clock in the afternoon, she'd still be in there having a couple of drinks. Boob hanging out, you know. Jeez, the word would get out. You know, her husband was a big shot in the political field, and she got Christ Almighty, Narns would show up, and paramedics and ambulances, and whoosh, off we go, and they fly her away someplace, you know. And you wouldn't see her for about a month. You know, now I know where she was going out here, Arizona, someplace. Then she'd come back. She'd come to AA. And you've seen this type in AA, you know. First night back, my name is Hazel, and I'm an alcoholic. And then the meeting would start. Then somebody, old timer, would say, anybody got anything they'd like to say tonight? Hazel would put her hand up. He'd say, yeah, Hazel, what do you got to say? She said, I'd like to make a motion that we cut the meeting down to 20 minutes and play bridge. <laughs> Jesus Christ, the old timers would come out of them back seats like the brigade, you know. <laughs> And she'd get all frustrated and she'd get up and resign. You know. <laughs> I was in prison with Mike. Seventy percent of his life he was confined. You know, he was a burglar by trade. And, and the reason he said he was an alcoholic is because he had screwed up. He says, every time I ever got caught was because I screwed up because I had a couple of drinks to get a little courage up to pull the job. And instead of getting courage, I make some stupid-ass mistake and here I am. I camouflaged this name years ago when I made this board, but everybody, by the time I told the story, they all knew what I was talking about. That's Barbara Payton, and I can use her name now because she's dead now. Some of you young people won't remember Barbara Payton. Well, they're shaking her head, she knows. Years ago, Barbara Payton was probably going to be the next Jean Harlow, the next big six goddess down there in Hollywood. Beautiful, beautiful woman, you know. She got mixed up in a deal with French Chaton and Tom Neal, and somebody got killed, you know. And that ended her movie career. And she headed wherever the hell people like her head. And then I met her and wound up and knew her very well uh, as a resident of Chicago Skid Row. Uh, there's a lot of children in here tonight, so I don't want to recount too much, you know. But I can tell you some very disgusting and sick and obscene and, and tragic things, you know. I saw little school kids on the way to the school in the morning, you know, violating her body just for a nickel, you know, just... I've seen guys just use it and just so she get a drink out of the bottle, you know. Anything to get the damn drink. Uh, you know, you've got to remember that, you know, that when that time comes when alcohol is our life, we're no different. If you're convinced it's your life, you too will do anything in the world to protect your life, you know. That young lady had to go the complete route, you know, disgusting. Now I'm going to tell you the most tragic thing that's ever happened in my life. The most tragic thing. And I'm going to hold back all the choking and all of that because I don't want to be cornball. But listen carefully to this if you've not listened to anything. And remember the words in the book Alcoholics Anonymous where it says, this is a time for complete honesty with others. For there is no need for us to impress you with fabricated falsehoods. The guy I'm going to talk about right now is dead. Dead. He hung himself in the clothing room mental institution in Elgin, Illinois. 
I'd like to tell you the events leading up to that. Shortly after I got sober, I was very active in hospital and institutional work. Many of you people may not realize this, but years ago, there were no programs for alcoholics. They didn't have alcoholic units at hospitals and programs at the VA and all that kind of crap. No, no. Closest thing you could find, perhaps, would be the old Keeley Cure, something like that, maybe, or Park Sanitarium there in San Francisco to just throw you in a room let you shake it out for a while. Or you could get yourself committed to a mental institution. Sort of dry out there. But you weren't being there in any kind of an alcoholic program. You're in the egg basket with the rest of the people and everything you had said MI on it. Mentally ill. Now one of the pilot programs in the state of Illinois was at the Elgin State Hospital. Let me tell you. A lot of credit to AA here. Guy by the name of Kerner, I believe, was the governor. Not Kerner. Just before Kerner. Doesn't make any difference who the hell. This guy wanted to help the alcoholic. So they put up a pittance of money to develop an alcoholic program at the Elgin State Hospital. And they turned the money over to the professionals. And as professionals always do, they used up the money quickly, you know, before they even worked with the alcoholics. You know, they bought a bunch of file cabinets, typewriters, all sorts of stationery and little name plates for their desks and all that bullshit, you know. And it come time to take care of a drunk, they didn't have any money. Didn't have any money to staff these alcoholic units. They had the bosses, but no horses. So they were about ready to throw in the towel on this deal. When some very dedicated members of the hospital and institutional committees in Chicago, Illinois, went to Springfield to talk to the governor. They told the governor that they sort of had an idea that maybe they could get enough volunteers from amongst the AA membership in the Chicagoland area. And for a year, they could actually staff that program without pay. If the state would guarantee that at the end of the year, they'd come forth with enough money to hire people. Well, the deal was okayed by the state. So these members of AA had to go out amongst the groups then and ask for volunteers. Everybody couldn't work on Sunday. And, uh, and you had to take two days. There was three shifts a day. Each shift required 21 people. You had to take two shifts a week. One could be on a Saturday or Sunday, a normal non-work day, and the other had to be on one of your normal work periods. So you were going to lose time from work. Now, I could make that sound as though it was a big sacrifice. It turned out it wasn't. Because most of the companies, I know mine did, I volunteered and they even paid me for the day that I was supposed to be working. Just about all of them did that. So we had two shifts. We'd done that for a year. At the end of the year, the state was tickled to death with it. They hired people and it's still in existence to this day. As a result of that, they gave the beginning members, you know, what they call a gold card. It really wasn't a gold card. It was a card that said you were one of the 
But it gave you a little bit of a privilege. Our privilege was that any time an alcoholic wanted some help, we could, on our own say-so, bring him right out to the hospital, bypass all of the receiving wards, and bring the guy directly to the alcoholic treatment unit. That was a good deal. Now the word soon got around who had this power, who had these cards. And I was living by myself. I was in between wives then, as I usually am, you know. And uh, it was on a Sunday, and this Al came to my house. It was in the wintertime. And uh, I didn't know Al all that well. I had been in a couple of nut houses with him in the past. I hadn't seen him on Skid Row, and I guess I'd done some time in the Cook County Jail with him once, and... Uh, but he was no buddy-buddy or anything like that. And he showed up there, and it was obvious he had been drinking, you know, but he didn't look all that bad. You know, hell, I've seen, there's some of you sitting out here sober that look worse than he did. <laughs> but uh I said, what can I do for you, Al? He said, well, he says, I'd like you to take me out to that hospital and get me in that program for the 90 days. Now, it was very common in those days, in the wintertime, for guys to check in to hospitals to get the hell in and out of the snow. I'd done that plenty of times, you know. And I, I figured that's what Al wanted to do. But I, I was so dedicated to our program that I didn't want to louse it up either, you know. And, and we had a deal out there. If you signed up for the 90 days, stayed the 90 days. If you didn't stay the 90 days, you could never come back on that program again. So I says to Al, I says, you know, are you sure you want to go out there? Because that's a heavy trip. That's three months. He said, well, hell, he's I got no place to go. He's I got no job. I only got a couple of dollars. And I said, well, Jesus, that all is bothering you. I said, hell, I can take care of that for you. And he said, what do you mean? Well, I was uh, a superintendent. I was building an addition on what they called Dundee High School. It was the next little town to Elgin. I said, I'm running a little job over here, and I said, I could probably fix it up with the laborer's business agent and bring you over there with me tomorrow, and I'll put you on as a hard carrier. And, you know, you could make whatever the hell the scale was then, you guys. And I said, you can stay here in the house with me, you know, until you make a payday, and then you can get yourself a room and get on your feet. I says, it'd be no problem to me. It's just as easy to cook for two, one. So he said, Jesus, thanks. That, that's great, you know. I said, I know you're a little quick today. I says, so, you know, I'll give you a drink every four hours. The same thing we do up Myrtle there, you know. I said, slow you down. I'll get some food in you. So I gave him a drink about every four hours. A little soup into him, some eggs. About nine o'clock at night, we had a guy deliver a big pizza. Ate the pizza and... All during the day, you know, we listened to the Bears on the radio, the football game. And uh, he was doing the, the crossword puzzle in the Chicago Tribune, the Sunday one, whole big page. You know, he used to have feature puzzle. And every now and then he'd ask me, you know, uh, what's a five-letter word that means sailing ship? It begins with an S. Sloop? He said, yeah, that's right. And he put it in there. Then we talk a little bit like was a Greek god of war, you know, like people do. About 11 o'clock, I said to him, well, Al, I said, time to go hit the sack. we got to get up early. I said, come on, I'll show you where you're going to sleep. And he said, ah, to hell with it. 
He says, take me out to the hospital. God damn it, I was pissed off. You know, poor me. I figured I'd worked with this guy all goddamn day. This son of a bitch bought him the pizza and all that crap. And now I told this. So I said, I didn't even argue with him. Get your goddamn gear then. Come on. I had a little old pickup truck and didn't have any glass in the window on one side. And it was getting cold and beginning to snow. And I drove him out to the hospital. Got out there about midnight. I took him right to the alcoholic unit, which is in a place called VDC-3, which meant Veterans Diagnostic Center 3. And I whipped him over there, and the hell rang the bell. The guys came. They knew who the hell I was. And in we went. I told him to sign in Al. And they took Al right away, and off he went, you know, get his clothes off and all that crap. I hung around the day room there with the attendants, had a cup of coffee, and told a few lies, a couple of smokes. And then I went home. Now, Al had given me his money, which is a smart thing to do because the hospitals normally would take it away from you and dole it out $2 a week, you know. And he had had about $34. And he said, here, you hold this for me, and then tomorrow get me a carton of cigarettes and then bring it back out to me after I've been shook down and that way I'll have the money. And that's smart politics, you know. You walk around the state hospital with 35 bucks in your pocket, that's like being a millionaire, you know. And so that was our plan. So I left there about 1 o'clock in the morning, went home, went to bed, went to work. Next day was a pisser. Jesus Christ, half sleet, snow, lousy day. I got soaking wet and it was cold and it was foggy. Just a badass day, you know. And at 4.30 I got ready to go home and, and Jesus, I was just cold all the way through and all I could think of was getting in a hot tub and I was wondering if you, how long I could stay underwater, you know. Just, it was just miserable. I remembered I had promised that jerk to bring him his damn cigarettes and his money. So I figured, well, I'm not going to go home and get all cleaned up and then come out in this crap again, you know. I'll stop and get some cigarettes now and I'll go right out there and I'll give him his damn money and his cigarettes and tell him to screw off, you know. And that's just how I felt. And I went out there and I rang the bell at VDC3 and the attendants came and I said, I want to see Al. I said, Al who? I told him. He had a big board. Ain't nobody on this ward by that name. I said, the hell there ain't. I said, I brought him in here at midnight. Said, well, wait a minute. Took the other sheet. He said, oh, 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 yeah. He said, they transferred him in the middle of the night. I said, they did. Well, all I thought of right away was that, you know, he had had a seizure or went into DTs. And they had transferred him over to the physical hospital part because that's what they did. And I said, oh, for Christ's sake. He said, what have a convulsion? The guy says, no, he's over on A3 South. Now, nobody in here will know what the hell A3 South is, so I'm going to tell you what A3 South is. A3 South is a designation for a maximum security ward at the Elgin State Hospital. Every mental institution has an A3 South. There are rooms that are probably a little bit bigger than this room right here. It sort of looks like this. Same kind of floor. Same kind of floor. But no furniture. No furniture. Nothing. Nothing that can be picked up. And about every eight feet is a floor drain. And in these units 
are what you and I would refer to as the vegetables. These are men and women who don't know who they are, what they are, or where they are. Often they're naked. They strip their own clothes off. They tear the clothes off of each other. They rub their excrement and other people's excrement all over their bodies. They eat excrement. They urinate anywhere on anywhere. And all they do is moan. Moan. Horrible things. You might be wondering how I know it so well. I know it very well. Because twice in my life I was a patient on a ward like that. Oh, not because I had vegetated. I don't know if this was right or wrong, but way back when, sometimes doctors, under the pretense of helping alcoholics, would punish you if you violated some of the rules over there in the alcoholic unit or something like that. As a form of punishment, they'd transfer you over to A3 South for about three days. In other words, they caught you smoking in bed. Or running in a bottle of wine with the chicken delight jeep, you know? They'd say, well, we'll teach you a little lesson. We're going to put you over in A3 South for three days. See how you like that. I'll guarantee you one thing, friends. If you're sober and you're sane, and you spend three days on a ward like that, you'll become willing to obey any rule they got in that hospital. I guarantee you. Twice that it happened to me. Now, I'm very, very ashamed about what I'm going to tell you now. But i got to tell you the truth. When I first heard that he had been sent over to A3 South, I was happy. I said, good for that son of a bitch. Keep me up all day Sunday. Make me buy him a pizza, that inconsiderate bastard. I even quickened my steps to get over there because I wanted to laugh at him. <laughs> I'm glad because I was convinced they had caught him smoking. Or some other silly infraction of the rule. Because I remembered they had took him immediately back there into the ward, 11.30 at night. Didn't give him a chance for that good night's smoke, you know. I figured the bastard got caught, you know. I really wanted to put the screws to him. I went up to the third floor. I stood there in the visitor's cage, just like the old drunk tanks, fellas. They went in to get him. I don't know how long I stood there. Two, three minutes, I guess. Pretty soon the door from the ward opened up. Most tragic thing I've ever seen in my life came walking into the cage. Ow. I didn't have a stitch of clothes on. I didn't know it at the time until I could smell it, but he had excretions rubbed all over his body. His eyes had a vacant, very vacant, hollow look in them. He didn't know who he was or who I was. He didn't give a damn either. And all he said, and I can mimic it to the tune. turned away and I left. 
I went home thinking, good God. And this guy gets out and gets to a meeting with that son of a bitch ever drinks again. He's going to be crazy. I went back the next night early because I was going to an AA meeting. And I went up to see how he was making out. They brought him into the cage and he went, I went on the average four times a week for the next 11 years. I never heard that guy say anything but, He was 32 years old when I brought him to that hospital. Fourteen years later, he died. I was in California for three years. Whether he came to or not, I don't know. But he hung himself. He was buried at the Elgin Hospital. Unclaimed, unwanted, even in death. But you know, when I had gone back that very first night after seeing him, as I went into the house, I picked up the Monday paper, and I was sort of sitting there in the chair thinking about him and looking at the paper at the same time. And I came to that part in the paper where way down in the corner it had the answer to the Sunday crossword puzzle. And as I saw that, I looked over where he had been sitting on Sunday. And there was that section with the puzzle he had been working on. And some kind of masochistic curiosity made me want to see how he had done on the puzzle. And I looked at the puzzle, and I compared it with the answers. Oh, it wasn't 100% correct. There were quite a few mistakes, some empty spots. Sort of looks like the puzzles that are laying around your house, or that are laying around up where I work, half-finished. There was a man who, within a period of eight hours, when he was normal enough and young enough and strong enough to converse with me for a whole day, do a crossword puzzle as you would do it, destined to spend the rest of his life as a vegetable. I went back there to his funeral I talked to the doctor in charge. And all they had on the death certificate was acute alcoholism unattended. unattended. That's a rough shot. Now, I don't think any of you in here are that bad. 90-10. But I've told you a little bit about my friends. And I only hope you know that somehow you've identified with some of them. Only in the hopes that if you can identify with somebody up here, you'll know how serious your problem is at this time. If you identify with Patricia or Jimmy or, or get down here with the heavies. And if you recognize the seriousness of it, then you'll know what kind of an effort you have to put forth. So please, for a moment, pick out who you think you are, just like up here. And then you'll know. And the one thing I forgot to tell you, 
is that they're all dead. Every one of these people died as a result of alcohol. Patricia never got a chance to see Skid Row. Jimmy never had a seizure in his life. You don't have to go to all of those lengths to die. It can come any time you take the drink. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.